On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Ross Schaefer, founder of Salsa Cycles. different intro music than usual this time uh, because what Ross does lately is involving pedal steel guitars and that's a really cool pedal steel guitar solo from uh, Neil Young record. Anyway, on with the show. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world and uh, this week it's Ross Schaefer who started Salsa Cycles in 1982. He had been doing some bike frame building and and, uh, some work in the bike industry for you know better part of 10 years prior to that and then uh, started Salsa Cycles I had some business partners, had a handful of employees, built it into a pretty big company. They're really known for their stems, the the sort of fun brand that went around the bikes, uh, you know, building a lot of mountain bikes and, and all sorts of bikes. Uh, and then up in 1997, uh, you know, as he says, he got tired of being a boss and he uh, he made an exit. He sold the company to QBP, uh, the, the, you know, everybody knows QBP, Quality Bicycle Components and uh, or products, products. Anyway, uh, sold the company, worked with them for another year or so, and then uh, went on his merry way to uh, to explore the rest that our uh, our uh, world had to offer. And so he's been doing all sorts of other things, and really excited to have him on the show. I got to ask him about you know his time uh, with Salsa, you know, building that, the company culture, the things that they did, uh, the experiences leading up to that, and then what he's been working on since. And uh, there's a lot of things he's been working on since, but one that's particularly cool is about the last 10 years, he's been working with a, with a company called Sierra Steel Guitars, and they, they do pedal steel guitars. And so, um, yeah, he, he has actually designed a new pedal steel guitar, which is such a cool instrument, such a beautiful sounding instrument. And um, he, you know, is very... Uh, gifted mechanically and technically and uh, also you know he likes likes playing music and uh, you know he can play pedal steel a little bit and so uh, he had one and he wanted to he wanted to you know make it a little bit better he was always fixing it and he he fell into this opportunity to do this work with pedal steel guitars which I think is super interesting you know I played guitar and did musical stuff a lot when I was younger but even if you didn't uh, the mechanics of it are pretty interesting he has a YouTube channel that I think is called Sierra Steels or something. If you search Macon Chips on YouTube, you'll find a, a handful of videos that he's done uh, that don't have enough views. They're pretty cool. But anyway, he's uh, just showing his little shop process for making and testing and developing different things. And I think it's super fun. And it's, uh, you know, it's the guy who built Salsa uh, is, a, is a neat little bonus to that. Where I cut into the interview here... Uh, you know, he's just given us the backstory on Salsa, what led up to that and, and what that company was like. This episode is a little bit different than usual. I forgot to turn on my good microphone. I didn't know the Salsa story super well, so it's kind of hard to guide the interview too much. But uh, what we ended up with, I think, is pretty interesting and uh, pretty informative. And there's a little bonus clip I had to put at the end. Uh, sounds like we finished and then there's a little extra content after that that I think is really good advice about if you're thinking about employees for your business. Really good perspective. I think that's all I really need to say, so I'm just going to roll the interview. 
I fell in love with bikes when I was young and uh, somewhere along the line, I was about 20 years old or so, I got into them very hot and heavy and got into nice frames and stuff and saw a frame that I really wanted, but it was 350 bucks, $350 (laughs) for a wizard frame made by Brian Bayless and his partner then Mike Howard. And, uh, it was like one of the most beautiful pieces of sculpture I'd ever seen. And I, at the time I was working in a machine shop. I'd worked in a machine shop through high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the last two years of high school, just doing assembly and, you know, production work, cutting, you know, 8,000 slots and 8,000, uh, axles for, we made pallet jacks oh, cool. uh, at this particular place. Um, but I learned painting there and I learned a lot of stuff there, but it wasn't, I didn't care because I was going to be a rock star. I didn't need to know any of that shit. This was going to be um, mid seventies or something. This would be, uh, well, I graduated high school in 73. So this would be early seventies that I was working in the machine shop mm-hmm. and then, um, found my way to building my first bike in 1976. And that was just, hey, man, I want to build one of these for myself. I can do that. I can't afford 350 bucks, <laughs> but I could build a bike. I mean, all I need is a torch and shit. I worked around metal and tubing a lot in high school. I, what the hell? And, uh, <laughs> and, and then just got sucked in and kind of couldn't help myself. And right away, people are asking me to build frames for them. They saw my first frame, which was a total piece of shit built from a Proteus kit. Um, but I was proud of it. It worked. And uh, it worked for quite a while. This was so, a mountain bike or what, what were you building? Oh, no, no, no. This was a road bike. And this was, so this is 1976. And uh, I started building frames at a very low level um, with almost nothing but a, a wooden bench and a bench grinder and a drill press and uh, a hacksaw and some files. Of ice, of course. Uh, I started building Redbush cycles and uh, built Redbush cycles until 82 when I changed the name to Salsa after I'd worked at Santana for a year and a half or so. Mm-hmm. So I was building Redbush road bikes mostly. I built one uh, 650B kind of pre mountain bike thing under that name. And then went and got all my lugless licks down working for Santana mm-hmm. for a little while. I actually had a job lined up with Medici, another road bike builder in Southern California, because I really wanted production experience. It's like, okay, I love doing this, uh, but it's really hard to get good at this stuff when you're, when you're making a living as a carpenter or a bike mechanic or whatever you can make a living at to support your hobby, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted the production stuff went down to Southern California from Santa Cruz to take this job at Medici. And they said, ah, we got some stuff going on right now. Come back in a couple of weeks. So I drove out to Santana just to see the shop and they hired me on the spot. And a month later I was managing the uh, frame building department there and learned a shit ton about building bikes there. So I'm really thankful for that experience. And uh, a lot of the business stuff absorbed whether I liked it or not, you know, it just kind of seeped into me too, because I learned a lot of lessons that did me well with my time with salsa. Mm-hmm. Um, 
by the end of my time, my first, I did two stints at Santana. One was like, Hey, come back. We've got an emergency in production. We need you back. That was a different thing. But after the, at the end of my first uh, year there, or so my pals had all gotten together and this is like late 81 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe one and said, come on, man, I know you don't like mountain bikes, but build us some mountain bikes. Now you have all this loveless shit down. You can build those kind of bikes, no problem. Come on, come on, come on. They're just slugs, you guys. They, you've ridden those Richies and stuff and those thump jumpers. They're, they're like they're just sleds. Yeah, because we, I came from a community uh, both in Southern and Northern California where we did lots of off-road on our 10 speeds or, you know, just our road bikes. Mm-hmm. And we went through lots of tires and wheels and tubes and all that kind of shit. But that was part of the fun of it, too, is how gnarly we were and blah, blah, blah. Um, and we really took that to an extreme. I mean, what they do is gravel riding now. We were doing it with it, including lots of single track and stuff on our 10 speed back in Santa Cruz in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Wow. Um, but which was a blast. But you did go through, you know, <laughs> you damaged stuff, riding, <laughs> riding that kind of stuff on road bikes. So anyway, I was kind of just like a, too much of a Puritan to accept road bikes. I decided, okay, well, these are orders anyway, so I'll build these guys bikes. And uh, I'll build one for myself. And that was the hook. And, you know, I built my bike up. It was the second salsa ever built up. And uh, I probably didn't touch a road bike for three years literally wow because it's like oh my god this is what this is about and i had done different geometry than the earlier mountain bikes and they were much more for the time downhill oriented with slacker geometry and whatnot and mine was well i'm doing this stuff on way steeper road bikes and stuff and so there's got to be a middle ground here that works and Came up with my geometry, which was a little bit different from everybody else's by, you know, one or two degrees here and there. And um, it was very popular. And that was kind of the start of my frames. I went out with, I built those first five bikes, first uh, mountain bikes under the salsa name and went around to a few bike shops in the space of a week. I had 16 orders. Wow. And I'm going, holy shit, 16 orders. Because with Redbush, if I had two orders backed up i'm going yeah man i'm a frame builder because <laughs> <laughs> this was in the mountain bike boom right like mountain biking was yeah, really people. starting to catch on and and the big companies that sold bikes in mass production hadn't really caught on yet right right they were just catching on univega caught on uh i think raleigh might have had one back then stump jumper of course i think univega was the first one actually but um they were coming on, so it was those first bikes that I built were 1982, and uh, it was definitely, I mean, mountain biking was really happening. There was still very few of us small companies making them in any, you know, viable quantity, and uh, I quickly saw that making making custom frames, at, within about a year, I had a back log of 63 frames or something like that wow of just pure pure custom frames and that's just all made to measure and blah 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 and uh i was kind of freaking out it's like there's only one of me and, uh, and a couple of friends approached me about doing a partnership and that's when the stems came along 
and we formed a company called Salsa Cycles a la carte. Uh, and, uh, we served up production bikes and production stems and production bars and stuff like that. That partnership lasted a, an entire year for the second guy and only about seven months for the first guy. <laughs> Me and the first guy are still friends though. <laughs> uh, the lessons we learned, but, um, learned a lot through all that. But the main thing was getting those stems going because at the time I'm going, we need products. We need a product that doesn't take all the time of a frame, doesn't take all the marketing of a frame and, uh, and that we can make a big, better margin on it. And I said, well, you know, I've made a bunch of stems now. They're pretty easy to make. And so we started, we went around to bike shops in the Northern California area. We spent like two days driving around greater Bay area with stems in our pocket, like three sizes. And people were going, you know, the first guy was down at Marin. He goes, oh, well, Joe Breeze has been making stems for years. And I said, well, yeah, I know. I know he has. And, the, and they're awesome stems. And Joe's a great guy. But I have these on the shelf for $25. <laughs> and they go, <laughs> oh, really? That's and uh, so that, you know, and that, that was really where Salsa really took off. I mean, we were pretty well known for our frames at that point. I don't know if I was in the Hall of Fame by then. Matt. I don't know what the years we're talking here. No, this is pre-Hall of Fame stuff. But um, we started making stems. And by the end of my tenure there, we had over 120 different models of stems. Some ungodly, unmanageable type of thing that, you know, some of which we literally made one batch of 10 or 20 a year. Yeah. Um, uh, but you were the best supplier in the world when you had it for the one customer that needed it. Yeah. You know, that, that 10 times a year that that happened. Ross, do you have any five centimeters down? I sure do. <laughs> Let me just send that right out to you. <laughs> Ross, do you have any 16 centimeters down? No, but I can make it for you. And I do have 15. <laughs> wow. But that was mountain bikes, road bikes, track bikes. That was everything. Yeah. It, uh, it really, it really grew. And, um, we won world track. Well, not we, but Marty Nostein rode my stems to several world championships and uh, some other world championships were won on the stems. And it was, it was awesome. We yeah. were a contributor to the, the Olympic team at one point. It was, there was some really exciting stuff that just, it's like, wow, this is what I'm in it for. I'm not making very good money, but I'm having so much fun and all my crews, my friends. And, and that was a bugaboo all having, all the crew be your friends. It's hard to be a boss yeah. when you're friends too, because you're the best guy on the planet when you're buying pizza and beer at the end of the day after a bike ride, you know, after work bike ride, then pizza or whatever. And then you're the world's biggest asshole when you're calling somebody down for just ruining 10 pages. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like, well, yeah, I get it. I mean, I've been an employee in my life too, but, but what the fuck you guys? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and that became harder and harder for me to navigate. Uh, and it took me out of the shop far, far more than I wanted to be for relaxation. Every once in a while, I'd go kick a welder off the bench or somebody off a machine and just say, don't anybody bother me for an hour. I'm just working in the shop. Just leave me alone. You know, and I just sit and weld or braze or, or whatever. Yeah. Just to get away from the fucking phone and, and, you know, calling bike shops that I've been doing business with forever 
since they were tiny and I was tiny and they're going, Oh yeah, Ross, but you know, I owe so much to track this month. I just can't afford to pay. I know I'm a couple of months behind. I'm going, I'm not a fucking bank, man. What? <laughs> it, my whole relationship with business and while, well, you know, I, I think I was pretty good at business. I'm told I was because I didn't lose my shirt with salsa. I came out with a good savings account, not huge, but a good savings account and um, enough to facilitate what I do now and the awesome life that I have now. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I saw a lot of the bankruptcy papers and that kind of stuff from some of the other companies of the day. Yeah. And not, not a lot of us made it out with our skin. So my trick was just don't borrow money. <laughs> no matter how often the bank says, Ross, you do really good on this. I mean, you use a credit line the way it's supposed to be used. Most people just use it as a loan. And I go, no loans for me, man. It was, <laughs> it was like, uh, it was, uh, uh, it was taking a big bite to get a credit line. It's like, oh, I don't want to put my life on the line like this. Uh-huh. But I just held really tight to the way we did things and it worked out. So I, you know, I sold salsa. I was literally debt free at the point in time that I sold salsa because I never, I would go to the trade shows. I don't know if you're going to want, you might want to edit some of this out. I'm not going to mention names. So I would go to trade shows back in the day uh-huh. and I'd, I'd come home depressed every time going, how the fuck does so-and-so have such a big booth? And him and his wife just spent a month cruising around Europe after the show over there. You know, I was in there and out of there in three days, twisting and turning to come home and get ready for the show here. And how do they have such a big booth? How do they do all this trouble? How do they have so many employees? Blah, 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 blah. Only to see their bankruptcy papers a few years later. Yeah. And go, oh, oh. <laughs> and it, there, was, there was a fair bit of that kind of stuff. And I just, I just couldn't ever, I never wanted to put mine or my family's life on the line with a big loan and, and bet against the industry, which was marching ever faster towards just putting us small guys out of business pretty much mm-hmm. as far as the mainstream bike industry, because we were part of the mainstream bike industry there for a brief moment in time. And now, you know, the whole frame building thing has turned uh, into much more of a boutique business. And, um, I mean, there's more good builders now than there's ever been in the time of man. And that's probably true of virtually every craft, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, From harpsichord makers to loop makers to whatever uh, didgeridoos. But um, it's a different thing now. And. I I go to the trade the shows now and I still get depressed at them. Maybe I'm just a depressive kind of guy, but I I I get depressed. I see all this fantastic work and then I go, okay, so 15 of these guys are making a living at this. <laughs> yeah, you know, making a real living, which means having kids and buying homes and blah 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 blah. The real thing, not living at mom's and eating peanut butter sandwiches. Mm-hmm. And there's just so it's it's kind of it's like all the craft stuff has been and this is I, the exact same thing happens to me when i go to a, a regular six string guitar show mm-hmm. so much amazing craft and some of these guys are are actually getting what that time is worth and some of these guys are getting nothing for it and it's you know it's like how much are you paying to be here is this a hobby or 
I don't know. To me, at this point, loving one's craft is a very, very special thing. And, um, and figuring out a way to enjoy it and not poison it with business is a very tricky thing. Yeah. Um, and it certainly poisoned me with bicycles. I love bicycles dearly still. And with, and still Jones, I've all got all kinds of, oh, next bike I build. Oh, shit, you haven't built a bike in 15 years now, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I still fantasize about building a bike now and then, but I'll probably never get around to it. I'm old now. <laughs> There's only so many things I can pull off in the next 30 years. Uh-huh. Um, I probably digress too much. I don't even remember where we were at. So, so that's salsa. I mean, up until the sale of the company. And uh, I just got tired of being a boss. I got tired of, you know, I had awesome employees who'd come to me and say, guess what? We're having a baby. The cast came back. We're having a baby. And I'm going, oh, congratulations. That's great. That's great. Fuck. <laughs> that's more pressure on my shoulders. You know, yeah. I think you talked to somebody else that was talking about that kind of stuff. Carl, Carl Strong said he got, he got more Strong. nervous when his employees had kids than they did. That's what he said. Oh, hell yeah. And buying homes and stuff like that. It's like, okay, so that means next week you're coming to ask me for a raise, which is fine. I want to give you a raise. Can I afford to give you a raise? No. Am I going to? Yes. <laughs> Are, is it going to make you happy? No, because it won't be as much as you want. Is it going to make, make me happy? No, because I can't afford the raise to begin with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just, it was literally a constant battle. And some of these people remain my closest friends. It, it's, it's a, it was a hard struggle and I was never cut out to be a, I was never cut out to be a business person. Yeah. And, at, you know, a lot of us guys, the, the Chris's and Scott's and uh, all, all of us small production shop uh, guys from back in that day, we didn't know we were going to end up be, doing real business and spending our day on the phone and yeah, it's like, holy shit, I just want to get paid enough to keep doing this uh -huh. and have it and have an OK place to live. Yeah, and go to a movie now and then. But um, so things changed as the world of manufacturing changed and suspension came in and suspension was something that I saw coming in. And I'm a, a very avid motorcyclist. Mm -hmm. And I have a pretty, pretty good understanding of suspension and all along with bikes and I go, okay, so you got this vehicle that weighs basically nothing. And you've got a motor that weighs mm, six times more than the vehicle. And the motor moves around all the, all over the place. And it's got a really high center of gravity to begin with. So how do you suspend? There's no static load to suspend. How the fuck are you going to suspend this thing? It's amazing to, to, to have something that's truly tunable and usable, it's amazing how far they've come. Yeah. But, you know, there's nothing better than legs and arms for active suspension. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I love the simplicity of a bike, and I love looking at a lot of the, the uh, suspension stuff. But it's, you know, once that started really taking hold, it, and I had a number of ideas and there was a few things I tried to get uh, get started with, and I made some suspension bikes. But it was it's like, man, this is a I can't play at this card table. There is going because of how difficult a, a vehicle. You know, think about a car. You can suspend a car. A car is a light car is two thousand pounds, 
and and the driver weighs nothing compared to the car. So you suspend the car. Mm-hmm. Motorcycle, uh, it, it, a vastly different ratio, but the bicycle's an extreme. Somebody's going to be coming up with a new design every day. Yeah. For this, and they are still. And I, you know, I saw this writing on the wall 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago. It's like, I can't, I can't play that game or I've got to have a new design at the show every year or every half year, because now you got to show up at, at uh, Sea Otter or you're not a player, you know, yeah. the yeah. industry just changed so much. Um, it became an industry that I say is the industry that eats its young. Wow. And because it counts on and, and think about this bro- really broadly, it counts on the passion and drive of young people. Yeah. Who, who, I mean, how many over 30 workers are, are behind the bench at bike shops? There's a few. They're mostly owners or management, though. So. Mm-hmm. But they count on the youth. And there's, as you go up the echelons and bicycles, there's fewer and fewer and fewer places to go. So it's not an industry that offers a lot of growth potential for the individual who's passionate about bikes. And yeah. all that serves to really, it can really rob a person of, you know, I have so many dear friends that are uh, still in the bike business or refugees in the bike business that uh, we all have this love hate thing. I mean, it was such an awesome community, but it was an awesome community because of the passion. And slowly, a lot of that awesome community got pushed out because they just couldn't afford to be in the bike business anymore. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I guess I better go to college now because <laughs> apparently I am managing a shop now. And apparently, 32000 bucks is as much as I can expect to make. <laughs> yeah. I I noticed with all the things that I've been interested in my life, they're mostly things that you can aspire to be really good at them and that's satisfying, but there's not a whole lot of career potential there. And when I Mm -hmm. got more interested in CNC machining for the first time, I was like, I am so interested in this. I feel like it's really expressive. It has, you know, like I'll never be able to learn it all. So I'm always going to be learning. And actually there is, uh, you know, the potential to make some more money. And that was kind of an interesting thought for me to think that there are careers and avenues that exist where there's more like potential uh, for financial security and development. Well, and this is a unique time for that. I, um, I haven't been very much this year, unfortunately, but for the last couple of years, I've volunteered at the local high school machine shop quite a bit. And, uh, are you familiar with the NIMS program? I'm not familiar with that specifically, but I did have on my list that we should talk about that. Uh, Jeff T. Jeff Tiedekin told me uh, we needed to talk about, uh, you know, some of the stuff that you do with help uh, high, high schoolers. Right. So um, I'm, I'm just, I'm, this is my latest, latest passion of the last 15 years. <laughs> latest <laughs> passion of the last 30 years, getting young people into making stuff. But, um, so we have a very active NIMS program, thanks to an awesome guy that's uh, been running the shop program, rescued it, let it go because he wanted to retire and then ended up rescuing it again because it got trashed in a couple of years. But he's got this wonderful program. It's one of the only NIMS accredited high schools in California. NIMS is, I think, National Institute of Metalworking Skills. Wow. And it's basically if you get some of these certificates as a high school kid, you're you're 
you're hired the second you walk into any machine shop because wow. these these little credentials that you earn for the mill or the lathe or the CNC mill or CNC lathe are proof that you've done some homework on it and you've got some experience on it. And, and that's, there's precious few, you know, in a class of 20 students, maybe three, four of the people are really into it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's just so awesome to see. And some of the kids, who aren't into it every once in a while, you see a little light turn on over their head and it's like, Oh, that's how that's made. <laughs> and it's, uh, it, it's, it's pretty shocking to work in the public school system. My wife's been a teacher for, uh, well, she just retired this year, but she's been a, uh, elementary school teacher for 25 or 26 years or something. Wow. And, uh, so I've been watching it from the side and, and uh, I actually considered taking over the shop class here in town at the high school, but I decided I, I, they, the school district would fire me too quickly because I'd be up there <laughs> too much. But I, so I'm the chairman of the NIMS board, and in, in that position, I, I do hardly anything but write, write a few notes on the two meetings we have a year but and sign a couple of documents for school funding shit. But I, end up in, I ended up in a couple of budget meetings. And man, I was ready to come over the table at this guy about 10 times through that meeting. And I'm not a violent guy. I'm really not. But (laughs) you, and then six months later, he's saying the exact same shit. And the funniest part is I came home from the first meeting. I'm going, holy shit, there's this guy down at the district. And I couldn't believe him. My wife goes, was his name? And I go, that was him. And she goes, Yep, I knew you'd be running into him when I heard you're going to a budget meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and some of these guys, it's like middle management exemplified. Okay, I'm just going to let that sit and age on my desk for a little while. Wow. The Petaluma High School last year got a brand new um, off mini mill and also got four brand new bridge ports. I'd never seen a new bridge port. No, three. Is it three or four? Shit, I can't remember. It's on my Instagram page. And that was the first school-funded tool purchases since 1973. Wow. So the trades are just being totally, totally ignored to a large degree in the schools. And they're really hard programs to fund. They're hard programs to get teachers for because none of the teachers are getting benefits because they don't have enough classes. Yeah. Why don't they have enough classes? Because all the, you know, every, the guidance counselors, everybody's pushing kids to, you know, academics, 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 college, academics, academics, college. It's obvious that doesn't work. And college is really friggin' expensive. And there's a lot of kids like me that were never going to make it in college. And, you know, something like NIMS is heaven sent. And what you say about a CNC career, you're absolutely right. Uh, some of my, some of the, my former employees are not, uh, I have to think about it. That probably, well, Sean is somewhat of a CNC uh, operator and machinist now, but mm-hmm. I've got employees who are plumbers and electricians, super high end. They manage their union crews and do, you know, like huge, huge installations. And they're making deep into six figures. 
yeah. because they like making stuff and they like working with their hands. And, you know, I'm telling these high school kids, you're going to be way better off than your friend who's going, who knows how it can rip around a computer twice as fast as you can and is going to go into the tech world. I said, you're going to have, you're going to be making 150 grand a year by the time you're 30 and you're going to have a solid job and you're going to be learning all this new tech and you're going to become, you know, a centerpiece for, there's always going to be the guy that somebody has to make the machine that makes the machines is the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. You see the value of, uh, you know, these sort of uh, technical skills programs in high schools with metalworking and stuff. What was your experience mm-hmm. when you were in high school and how did that help you succeed with what you've done? Dreadfully poor. You know, I pretty much ignored everything but pot smoking and playing music when I was a kid. <laughs> and I didn't even play music seriously. Um, <laughs> I, I listened to music very seriously. And I knew everything about all the guitars and all the amps and all that stuff. And I did horribly in school, but I liked to go to work because I liked I, I liked the machine shop because I was with an older crowd of people. I wasn't slinging fries. I wasn't selling door to door. I wasn't washing dishes. Um, most of those things I did, I didn't sling fries. But I, I liked the atmosphere and I liked producing something. And when I came to want to build bikes, I was literally, I just, it's like, why didn't I pay more attention when I was working in the machine shop? I could have asked questions. I could have been doing a lot of different stuff if I just shown some desire to. And now I realize I missed that opportunity. And, oh, shit, what am I going to do? And at the end of the day, my mechanical experiences of my youth, and this goes with bicycles too, total up to, well, I guess because what I know that I don't know and what I do know, which isn't much, allows me to not be afraid of trying. <laughs> and so that's, that's literally what I got from my machine shop work in, in high school. Because I didn't pay any attention to, you know, oh, yeah, I just set up the tool the way it was yesterday. I was chattering. Oh, I, oh okay, I'll move it up there. And, you know, the stuff, I just didn't log it in. I was going to be a rock star. I didn't need to know that stuff. That That's actually and, uh, pretty similar. When I was in high school, I... I was uh, played guitar a couple hours a day, and I was real serious about music. And I was terrified that if I went into a wood shop or a metal shop, I'd like lose a finger to a table saw and never play guitar again. So, like, I didn't. I was kind of interested, but like, I didn't even want to think about it because I was afraid I'd immediately lose a finger. And I just years that I could have been developing these skills and finding that I loved it were lost because I was afraid of losing a finger. (laughs) Right. I, on my third day, this you'll love this. On my third day in my first machine shop job, I almost lost my little finger on my left pinky, which ended my banjo playing days, which is fine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mind being a former banjo player all my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, so I just really wasn't afraid. It's like, you know, when I saw those wizards, I'm going, holy shit, that's amazing work. And I'd go look at a paramount at the swing shop that i hung out at and i'd look at my friends call nago and i go wow these are really something different this is really cool i want to get as close to this as i can i just got to do be careful and i'm not afraid of flame i'm not afraid of burning myself and Mm -hmm. having spinning wheels next to me and shit so you know i think i can do this and um you know one thing led to another 
And uh, I really learned everything from working on, as, as, as a youth, I learned more from working on my Volkswagens than I did in a machine shop about building bikes. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. Just, you know, mechanical, rudimentary mechanical stuff remains no matter how high a level you're on. And so if you have that platform to relate to and grow things from, I think it's invaluable. And kids sure don't today. I know that sounds like a really old thing. Yeah. <laughs> old yeah. person thing. My, I, many years ago, I gave my wife a toolbox for her classroom because she was constantly coming. Hey, can I borrow a ranch? I, there's this chair that needs fixing and I don't want to bother the janitor for it. And so I bought her a whole toolkit for the classroom and they had a whole thing, a slogan and everything. Don't panic. Miss Morrell, something's broken. Don't panic. Be a mechanic. Go get the toolbox and see what you can do about it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as often as not, they tuck it up more, but that was okay. There yeah. it was like, hey, they're occupied. And it was, uh, it's, you know, she teaches a garden program now. And there's something interesting. Even the shithead kids like doing this kind of thing. Even the, you know, the troublemakers mm-hmm. who are generally, their, their parents tend to be bigger troublemakers than them, if I may say. I, but um, the, she te- my wife teaches a garden program just two or three days a week now at the school she used to teach in the classroom at. And no matter, she never has problems with kids, even the ill-tempered, you know, the, the bad apples, so to speak. They come out to the garden and she hands them a shovel. And they say, what do you want me to do? She says, dig a hole. And they dig a hole with excitement and gusto. And they come over, they go, it's done. What should I do now? And she goes, fill it up and dig another hole. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're totally into it. You know, they're not, they're not razzing their neighbor. They're not beating on anybody. It's, you know, everybody has their different ways to approach life. Yeah. It's, it's really pretty intriguing what makes people tick. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, it's definitely making stuff that makes me tick. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, I got a couple other questions here on the list for regarding making stuff. You know, you, you built Salsa from 1982 and then you sold it to Quality in 1997. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, and then uh, you worked with them for a period, and you left, and you've been doing your own stuff. And I've seen uh, there's YouTube videos that you do uh, more recently um, about making different components for some lap steel or uh, pedal, sorry, pedal steel guitars uh, that are really cool YouTube videos. Uh, I think your shop's cool. I like your old Matsura CNC machine. Um, like, what what have you been working on uh, in the last couple decades here? <laughs> I mainly went underground. I did do some work for some bike companies. I uh, did a little work for Richard Sachs for some of his mainly uh, design refinement, I guess you'd call it, and documentation of some of his lug and dropout ideas and stuff. And there's a company called Public Bikes that I designed all their bikes early on. I've done precious few Let's see, me and a friend got a patent on kind of a, not a shock absorber seat post, but a uh, a flexible seat post. A seat post that just is more comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's basically a rubber bushing around the clamp. Um, I've done a few things in the bike industry, but mostly it's just been contract work, doing uh, stuff. I did some stuff for steel case furniture, 
I've done a bunch of stuff for a guy here in town who sells, um, no, what's the big magnet room in the hospital called? MRI room. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, he sells, he has manufactured and sells, um, uh, MRI room equipment. Mm-hmm. So I was doing a lot of prototyping for him and, um, playing with weird materials and springs that can't be magnetic and stuff. Um, I did an electric bike frame for Ford Motor Company. It was the Detroit, Detroit Bike World or Detroit Motor Show, car show back in like 2000. Wow. Um, I built some replica motorcycle frames, some of which are touted as being real. And I won't say what it is, so I don't get in trouble <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, for, you know, collector vintage people. Um, I lots of contract work, man. I've done stairways. I've done railings for gardens and stuff like that. It's kind of up until I got the steel guitar gig about 10, nine years ago. Um, I was doing whatever came down the pike, whatever somebody would pay me for except bicycles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I just didn't want to, it's like, Ross, you could be selling frames. It's like, yeah, but I, and I'm just back to the same old world and I'll, just have all my say the same old problems and it's changed and there's too many guys in it now anyway. And, and I'm just a grumpy old fuck. So I, you know, <laughs> why do you, nobody wants me out there, but I've learned a ton, you know, people would come to me and say, Hey, I need this. And I go, Oh, I've never done anything like that. Oh, well, so-and-so says that, that you might know somebody. I said, well, yeah, I might know somebody. Give me a week and I'll call you back. I might call him back and say, yeah, I can do it now. <laughs> Cause it's like, Oh, all I got to really learn is that, and I can call so and so who can crush the numbers for me on that. And so, you know, I'll just bill out his hours, and you know, and I figured it out. And it was it was it was great, but I always had to stay busy because I wanted to maintain. You know, when I sold salsa, I didn't get tons of money, regardless of what people think the riches I might have uh, <laughs> accrued. But um, I did successfully put it in the bank. I bought myself an expensive guitar from Paul Sadoff, one of my dear, dear friends. Oh, cool. Um, bought myself an expensive guitar and put the rest of the money in the bank. And that's kind of where it stayed, done its ups and downs with the market and all that kind of shit. So um, I came out with a savings account. Friggin' amazing. <laughs> but wow. uh, so that's allowed me to do a lot of different things and have the freedom to take jobs and not take jobs. I did. Have you ever heard of Worth Bats? No, never heard of that. Worth Baseball Bats. They're a company. They used to be in Tullahoma, Tennessee, and they wanted to start making aluminum bicycle tubing. So they hired me for about a year to consult with them on getting to know people in the bike industry and what what tubing designs required tooling-wise and blah, blah, blah. And, oh, man, what else have I done? I've... Uh, a guy that made scooters had an emergency once and said, how soon can you go to Taiwan for me? <laughs> it's like, uh, I, sorry, I don't want to go to Taiwan. He goes, I need somebody to go fix this production problem that's going on. I need you to go. <laughs> okay, well, if you pay me this much a day and buy me a business class ticket and I can be back by next Sunday, I'll go. <laughs> I mean, just weird stuff would come down the pike. That's how that electric bike for Ford. Oh, I see. Just an old, an old bike customer called me up and he worked it for not IDEO, 
big design firm. It's somebody else. He is on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, doesn't matter. But he said, hey, we've got this contract. you got this thing. I've got all these model makers here. We just need somebody to do the metal work, do the machining on this and that and this and that. And I, and I said, yeah, I can do all that. That looks good. Send me some parts. Send me some drawings and whatnot. Yeah, I can do all that. What's the time frame? We need it all in three weeks. What? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> ah! But I, I pulled it off, and it was like, wow, that's exciting. And I really got to tell you. He said, I said, how much can I charge? He goes, whatever you want. I went, really? Okay. <laughs> 120 bucks an hour. And it was like, wow, that was great money for three weeks. <laughs> and funny. then back to, my, back to my usual undercharging habits. Uh-huh. I've always had a hard time charging my customers, my freelance customers, for my college time, I call it. Yeah, yeah. Where you, you well, get yourself you know, up I to speed. I told I could do the job, and I don't know how to do this. But uh, you know, I'll, I'll just sit here, and I'm not gonna. The motorcycle frames that I built had to be gas welded, and the, the the actual samples I had looked like beautiful brass brazes, but they turned out to be just these amazing gas welded fillets. And I spent literally two weeks, about four hours a day, practicing gas welding to be able to do that. And I'm sure that I could never do it again now because I haven't done it since. But, you know, it's like, Ross, what are you going to do? You're still working on practicing that? How much are you going to charge these guys for this motorcycle? Or these, this guy for these motorcycle frames? <laughs> I can't charge him for this, man. <laughs> but uh, that's been that's been my whole freelance life it's like ah you know i want to give people a good value and i want to sleep with myself peacefully tonight and mm-hmm. i don't want to send off bad work and if you know i'd rather take the hit than have a customer not want to come back because my price is too high and sometimes the customer dictates that that doesn't matter you know I'll tell you what you owe me a lot more than i thought you did well i'll never be back great because <laughs> <laughs> that happens too but then I got this opportunity with pedal steel guitars and I have not looked back and it's just been, it's, yeah, I pinch myself still and I've been doing it for nine years or something now. So and, uh, yeah, let's talk about that. That the company is called Sierra steels. This was, uh, I did some research from what I could tell. It was an existing pedal steel guitar company that was bought by new ownership maybe 15 years ago and you and that new owner got to know each other and now you're working with them on the project to uh to make newer pedal steel guitars uh of your design yep that's pretty much it um we met because of bicycles (laughs) Um, an old bicycle customer of mine invited me have you ever heard of the bohemian club no. Well, look it up. It's it's a it's a. There's a lot of stories about the Bohemian Club, and I would venture to guess some of them are true, and most aren't. But <laughs> uh, I was invited to a Bohemian Club gathering by a customer of mine that I built a few bikes for him and his wife over the years, and because he knew I was way into good music and country music and guitars and stuff. And he took me to this gathering. It was a Bohemian Club event, and this guy was playing steel guitar there, and I had just taken up steel guitar. And a uh, longtime guitar player, so I was totally enjoying the band. I went to talk to this guy between sets and was looking at his Sierra steel guitar, which was one of the early companies to adopt any CNC stuff. 
mm-hmm. and actual machining. Uh, there's a lot of, over the years, there's been some pretty homespun pedal steels being made out there that look like, well, they visited Rex hardware a few times to get all their parts, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, pretty homespun, but uh, which is cool in its own right for sure. But, uh, you know, I was looking at these Sierras and he's going, so you know what a pedal steel is? Because they're pretty obscure. And so I go, oh, yeah, and I know Sierras, too. You know, Sierra uses this kind of machining and that kind of machining. Oh, you know about that stuff? Well, yeah, I'm a kind of a machinist and fabricator kind of guy. And I actually am trying to learn these things. But I'm finding I spend more time at my CAD station drawing up parts for them and, and working on the one that I have than I do playing it. <laughs> And he's going, oh, well, that's interesting because I own Sierra Steel Guitars. And I go, oh, wow. And we talked a little bit, and that was it. A year later, somebody that worked for him, somebody that's in his band, actually called me. He has a band that tours around the owner of Sierra. But wow. uh, um, the guy from his band called and said, hey, we want to talk to you about doing this pedal steel guitar project. And I'm going, oh, boy, I get to play in somebody's sandbox. And and it turned out they were basically offering me a job, which I didn't really understand at first. I thought I was just being invited literally to play in the sandbox. Bring your ideas. We've got some resources. Let's do some fun. Uh-huh. But um, at the end of uh, about a two-hour meeting, they said, well, figure out how much you'd need just to drop the clients and stuff, the work that you're doing now, and just work for us. And I went, What? <laughs> So I did, and my wife was working full time at the time, and I didn't really feel like I needed much as long as you know I could pay my bills and still keep a savings plan because I really want to retire someday. And yeah. retiring, by the way, only means not having to make money; doesn't mean stopping working. Um, told him he hired me, and it's been awesome since. And um, I, you know, the first phase of design and prototyping took the better part of five years. Wow. Uh, the first guitar was um, three and a half years to get a working prototype. And, you know, virtually you see all those parts of those making chips videos. Did you happen to see the testing video, the string testing or the changer testing video? No, I saw two or three videos. The the one where you were illustrating the Pez dispenser technique and one, <laughs> one or two others. Yeah. Well, I did lots of fatigue testing on things and it, it just... If you look, if you look, maybe find there's one where I'm assembling a guitar. You'll see all the different goddamn pieces that go in these things, and um, every one of those pieces has a minimum of ten iterations in my CAD program. Wow! <laughs> and I, and some of them as many as thirty or forty. You know, because the ideas don't stop. It's like, oh, no, this works better. Oh, I made it, but it broke strings. Okay, I got to redo this, redo that. <laughs> took a long time because there's a lot of little systems within it. And it took a long time to just make sure all those work. And I've been told, spare no expense, spare no time. I want the very best pedal steel guitar you can possibly design. It's like, wow. <laughs> and the, the pedal steel guitar market, it, it does not exist really so it really can't afford that. So it, I, I compare my job to, I, I tell people it's really more of a patron artisan relationship because he's paying me to make these things and I'm charging big bucks for them, but it doesn't pay anywhere near what he's paid me for almost 10 years or so. Wow. Uh, 
Um, and it's because he can afford it and he's passionate about the instrument and he doesn't want to see it go away. And, um, he's allowed me to do some stuff that is, has been just incredible. And, uh, I, I, it's like, wow, I actually make a living something doing something I really enjoy. And I have a boss who's never asked how much or when. Wow. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, the one time I tried to quit, he said, please don't, you never have to do that again. Cause I was getting pushed into doing something that just was, <laughs> was rank on me. And I went, you know, I'd make a living before that, before this, I don't need this kind of trouble in my life. Um, it had to do with a certain person in the organization. And, uh, um, he said, okay, just don't talk to that person. You don't have to do anything you don't want. Just don't stop doing the work you're doing. Wow. Okay. Shit. How lucky I, you know, I'm super lucky. I live in a beautiful place. I have this three acre farm that is paid off. It's mine. I'm a hundred percent debt free. The only bummer is I'm 64 years old. So that's kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> You're in um, the, are you still in the sort of Marin area where you did that work with salsa? Yes. Yeah, so I'm in Petaluma, which is just north of Marin. We're kind of the first town north of the Marin County line. And we're in Sonoma County. Um, and I've got three beautiful acres. We have a huge garden. We have sheep and goats and pigs and uh, uh, sheep and goats and pigs and chickens and bees and turkeys at certain times of year. And so we have lots of meals where we sit and we go, hmm, look at we bought the salt and the butter (laughs) and we're we're drinking goat's milk and we're eating goat's cheese. And it's, it's just, it's my, the hippie trippy youthful dreams that I had. And here I am living them, which is just awesome. Yeah. With my own wood shop here and my own metal shop. And I've been telling people, Hey Ross, because we're in California, right? People want to know what's going on with uh, this coronavirus stuff. Hey Ross, how is it to stay away? You know, you got to stay home and shit. Are you worried? Very worried. It's like, I'm a total hermit. I never get off the farm anyway. So, you know, this social distancing and, and self-isolation, fuck, that's my middle name. Uh-huh. I'm already there. Yeah, that's, that's uh, uh, me in my shop every day by myself. Uh, you know, that, that aspect of my life is not any different. <laughs> it's, it's a refuge. Yeah. For me. It's a place I get to go and learn and uh, be taught lessons. Get my get my my uh, fingers slapped every once in a while, and a lot of stuff happens here. And I'll never stop making things. So let me ask you some questions about the pedal steel guitars. Um, one okay. of them: If you have played six string guitar, how uh, radically different is it to try and play a pedal steel guitar, and what's the learning curve like? Well, they both have strings, and uh, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really more if, uh, I'll tell you, knowing regular guitar is not much of a shortcut. If you know the theory, if you know any, if you have any uh, idea of the theory behind the chords and stuff you play uh-huh. on a six-string guitar, that gets you a long ways. I see. And I've been, you know, I played, I was taught classical piano as a kid and I played violin for a little while and trumpet and school bands and marching bands and all that crap. And, and I've never used music theory in relation to my guitar playing 
it's always just been kind of by ear because I'm lazy and can't practice for shit. And, uh, it was just a malcontent with all that serious music stuff. Um, with pedal steel, I started studying theory again, just like, holy shit. Because there's really not a lot to relate to unless you're just a natural musician, in which case a natural musician can pick up anything and be making music within a few minutes. And there's, and if you have an inkling of the theory behind how songs are built, you know, with one, four, five chords or, you know, Mm -hmm. substitutions and that kind of thing, the really basic stuff, you can be playing sweet stuff on a pedal steel guitar in 10 minutes. Wow. Yeah, I saw but, some videos where, yeah, the, the open chords, you get a 1, 4, and a 5 pretty easily with the, the pedals on the left. Very easily, and right within there is, I mean, on one fret, with various pedal and knee lever combinations, on one fret, you can get every chord in a key. Wow. Um, and every note in a key, uh, you know, a couple of times. But... Um, it's making it. It's like so everybody can go. That's great. That's pedal steel, and people love it. And I've played like two pedal steel gigs in my life, and both times people came up and went, "Dude, you are so good. That sounds so great." And I'm going, "That is like the first thing you learn." And it's absolutely. <laughs> but people are drawn to the instrument. Yeah. So they appreciate hearing the sound of it. But to get good. Holy shit, it's a really, really difficult instrument yeah. that you really have to dive deep into. And to really master, you have to get good at theory. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that rule can be broken. The guy who owns Sierra is a very good steel guitar player. Very, very good. And I sat with him and said, whoa, that was cool. What did you just do? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, okay, thanks. <laughs> Just because he, you know, he has muscle memory and uh, yeah, been playing it for you know a hundred years. Yeah, I. Uh, but I'm such a technically minded person. I love thinking about the nuts and bolts of things. And music theory was always interesting to me for that sort of reason because you can you can analyze and understand stuff and then you know uh, create sort of like um, like yeah your own theory of like like this will work and it will sound sort of like this and this won't work and then some people don't really think like that they're not very analytical or technical about it they just they go by feel and they go by ear and maybe they have a good ear or they just spent a lot of time playing and they don't really understand right. what's going on from a technical angle they don't know how to explain right. it or notate it but like they can make sounds and I'm always kind of jealous of that people who are are more of that inclination and better at that yeah, and and in the end, it's a mixture of the two that gets you down the road because you can you can watch those technical guys and go, wow, watching him practice really is is amazing <laughs> because some of these guys and this goes for every instrument there is, they are so technically adept and they're just their performance is their tech, technical uh, wonderment and instead of the joy of what the music's projecting yeah and you can tell the difference in somebody who's feeling the tune and playing it versus just playing the tune and um i you know with steel that comes through in spades because it's such an expressive instrument if you play it right and i sure wish i could (laughs) but making guitars and making steels and that stuff is 
I love these instruments. They've been a part of my life all my life. And I've just always loved them. Just holding them and stuff, literally. And uh, this is making the stuff is just another way to enjoy it. Yeah. And as the players, as I used to be, can't stand staying up late at night. I, you know, I couldn't stand the drunk lead singer in the last band I was in, so I quit. And but I can still work on them and work by myself, and and uh, you know, have really great players playing them, and and uh, have the support of somebody who you know had the vision of, hey, I don't want to see this thing die. And and it, at the steel guitar shows, I'm kind of not literally, but but literally one of the youngest guys in the room, which is really <laughs> bad for an instrument. Yeah. And they're not trade shows at all. They're really more like a three-day open mic where uh, all these, it's hard not to say old guys because there's probably three <laughs> people the whole weekend that are uh, under 50 that are actually part of the steel guitar community. Sometimes they have the U.S. Navy country band come in and play which is an amazing band they're all younger of course but uh you go to this thing and it's a bunch of 60 well 60s young it's a bunch of 70 to 80 year olds getting on stage and playing for 20 minutes and you hear the same song like eight times a day and um there's 15 vendors out in the hallway and three of them are little old ladies with macrame stuff that they've made and you know one of them's me standing there going i want to go home <laughs> <laughs> and a few other builders and stuff they're not really a trade show they're kind of a, just a steel guitar convention if you will but they're very very small yeah. you know maybe two to four hundred of these instruments sell maybe 500 worldwide a year for wow. new instruments so there's you know it's almost nothing and, you know, Guitar Center on any corner sells that many in a weekend mm-hmm. of regular guitars. So, yeah, it's a different world. And uh, the opportunity has been given me to really dive into it and really do some pretty cool stuff that hasn't been done before. And to really refine a lot of stuff that has been done before is just it's I'm, I'm in heaven with it. It's yeah, just killer. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and all the parts of it. I mean, it's a very mechanical instrument as far as uh, musical instruments go. There's a lot going on in there, and uh, I can see how there could be room for improvement with all the different levers and the the moving action and the serviceability. And I heard you say something about that in a, an interview or something where you were talking about how you know you love the instrument and you, you weren't you weren't the like the pinnacle of musicianship, but you had a lot of experience with mechanical things and you wanted to see if you could make some improvements to the, to the machine. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of stuff immediately when I started, you know, first I borrowed a steel from somebody and the whole time I was working on it more than playing it. Cause I, I was constant. Well, why are they doing like this? Why are they, I was just whining, you know, to myself. And, <laughs> and then I bought a steel guitar. It was the same kind of thing. It was a much nicer. In fact, it was one of the very earliest, it wasn't a Sierra, but one of the very earliest guitars with, uh, a lot of machined parts and precision parts as opposed to just kind of homespun punched steel parts and stuff. But, um, I was working on a lot, but, and right away I'm going, well, that's not the way you hold something like that. It takes a side load. And this isn't the way you do that. Why don't they put this there? Why don't they use a bushing here instead of this? <laughs> and it's, it's just, you know, it's all from bicycles. All the exact same mechanisms are in bicycles. In fact, there's way more suspension involved in these damn things than there is in bicycles. And so, 
having looking back and thinking the suspension pushed me out of bikes, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I dove back in. It's just all a lot smaller, and people don't die on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the liability still, component still have pedals. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, one of the things I want to talk about for sure is, you know, when I talk to Chris Chance about Fat City, one of the things that is really impressive about what they did was that there are so many people who worked at Fat City and went on to start other businesses and do other things in the bike industry and elsewhere. And I don't know the whole legacy of what you did with Salsa, but I know uh, Sean, who did Soulcraft Cycles for a while, and a handful of other people went on to do other things. I mean, what was that like trying to sort of like foster, you know, development and growth in the people that you worked with? And uh, I imagine that's got to be satisfying to see the people that you hired go on to do other things later. Huge, huge. I'm in touch with five or six of the old employees on a pretty, pretty uh, regular basis. And um, most of them are doing really well. Um, most of them are doing stuff that they like and, a few of them have said many times, and I, you might have to cut this out, but um, how, how they couldn't be doing what they're doing today without their time at Salsa. And it wasn't just mechan- mechanical stuff, but just understanding how, because I, I wore how that business ran on a sleeve. It's like, nobody break anything today. <laughs> <laughs> we can't use the credit line for another month. You can't break anything for a month and you can't fuck up any paint jobs and we got to ship stuff on time. You can't spend any money. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I really tried to encourage people to learn and ask questions there. I tried to get them to teach each other because I found that was far better than the boss teaching. And I, I taught them to work as a system so that, you know, when they came back and, you know, they, one of the filers would come in and say, Hey, you know, he keeps doing this when he braces and, and, you know, it's really hard. It takes me extra time to do that. So I think, well, go tell him. That's better than me going to tell him. You're the one that is having to do the extra work. I'm just the boss complaining. And, you know, so I fostered, I feel like I fostered a community within the shop where everybody's really comfortable talking to each other and, and being able to help each other learn things and, and make a better product. Mm-hmm. And we had very good quality control through that. And that's what's enabled some of these guys to be such honcho um, uh, tradesmen that they are. And Sean, who's kicking ass making rims now at White Industries and was building beautiful frames. Mm-hmm. And uh, the virtually the day that QVP, you know, I quit QVP or Salsa uh, after about a year and a half. Um and they closed the shop. That was like in a July or something. They closed the shop a few months later. And virtually the day they closed the shop, Sean called me up and said, can I still use your barn to build frames? I said, fuck yeah. And I'd had a deal. I'd had a deal with QVP that if and when they ever closed the Petaluma facility that I had first dibs on tool purchases. Um, and they held up that part of the deal with the frame building tools anyway. And um, so I bought all the fixtures and all that stuff back for almost nothing. Um, And so Sean had a pretty well set up frame building shop to, to work in and set up right away. Yeah. Um, And, and he started that with one of the other employees too. And that employee went on to work in management at uh, Camelback and, um, 
Yeah, they're all doing real well. There's one guy that was a shop rat. I hired him when he was in high school. And uh, actually, a few of my shop rats are doing great. But he got into real trouble later in his life with drugs. and um, he, But he always stayed in touch. We were really close. And he didn't have a great relationship with his dad. And he has turned his life completely around, is now working hugely successfully in the music, uh, in the filming business down in LA. He's got a union job. He pulls down big bucks, works tons of, tons of overtime is rebuilding his aunt's house that he bought and, you know, having a kid and married a beautiful woman. And that's, that's the good shit. Yeah. But- you know, no. And, and he says, man, I know how much you were driven to build that business. And, and knowing some of the stuff about how you were brought up, which you shared with me when, because he talked to me about his relationship with his dad. And I go, well, you know, my relationship with my dad wasn't so different. And we talk and talk and talk. And, and I feel, you know, I feel like he's a brother at this point. And that's kind of how close we are. And it's just great. So I feel great about seeing these people. I kind of don't care what they do as long as they're digging it and having the life that they want. And, uh, you know, one of my dearest old employees, which was one of the best known ladies in the bike business in her time, Loretta Esparza is a librarian now, and she just loves it. And it's, and I'm in constant contact with her and it's just, it's great to see that, ah, we all grab, we all made it alive (laughs) (laughs) and we all graduated from the bike business and damn it, if we, all of us didn't learn something from it. And for the most part, it was positive. Of course, we learned a lot about human nature, and there's a lot negative to that, too. But uh, the bike industry, is uh, it was wonderful to be a part of, and I I couldn't do it anymore. I I, I wouldn't be able to be in it. Uh, I admire the people who do stick with it. I wish I still had that passion, but it got kind of killed. And and that you still love bicycles is maybe... um you know, part of the positive that comes out of leaving the industry? Oh, hell yeah. I love bicycles. I love seeing all the bitch and work that's being done. You know, I say I get depressed when I go um, to the to Na- the NAB show or something, but it, it's more of just my own depressive existential. Why can't people make a living doing the things they love kind of thing? Mm-hmm. But, um, but I go there and honestly... It's like, holy shit, I was I couldn't do shit back when I was building frames. Look at these guys do now. And <laughs> and and look at the resources. Nobody had lugs that cool when I was a kid. And look at these dropouts. Holy shit, dropouts cost more than a whole frame set costs. Yeah. <laughs> I sold my first frames for $160. Wow. Because <laughs> I could get the two set and lugs and everything for about 60 bucks. And I figured, ah, for 100 bucks, I'll build your frame. That's funny. Takes me three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. It was fun. Uh, it, it, yeah, I, I learned a lot. I want to talk a little bit about the art direction of Salsa. Uh, you know, you guys, uh-huh. I think um, visual art for sure with the logos and stuff and the paint jobs, but also um, in terms of like the, I like it to think of branding and like companies, uh, especially one uh-huh. like yours, as having like a spirit to it, having some sort of attitude or some sort of values and being like fun. 
And I see that a lot with the old salsa, um, you know, marketing materials and stuff. What was it? What was it like building that sort of brand or the the fun energy of that company? And with regard to the visual art, like who was responsible for that? You know, if that is my true legacy with salsa, I'll be super happy because it was fun. That's how I I had fun building them. I had fun riding them. And as I, and I worked in fun bike shops where we, you know, we'd have, you know, like, oh, dance break. We'd go out and dance with the customers when a certain song came on or whatever. And it's like, it's got, this is, you know, I love bikes because they're fun. And, and because they remind me of the freedom they gave me when I was a kid. And, you know, at one point I'm going, I got to change the name of bikes because everybody wants to know what Redbush is about. And it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's just got some personal significance in it. And I, you know, it's, I, I got to have a more commercial name because I am a frame builder now. That is what I'm going to do. And uh, I came up with salsa and my wife at the time goes, salsa, I can't believe it. That's, you eat so much of that stuff. I go, well, that's why I'm calling it salsa plus. And I went, plus, think about it. I mean, it's fun. Nobody doesn't like salsa, whether it's dancing or music or the, the food. And, you know, Red Bush, you tell them that, they go, what does that mean? But salsa, nobody asks what it means, and I can see pepper logos and all this kind of stuff. Now, I have some artistic chops when it comes to working with metal and files and stuff, but I can't draw my way out of a paper bag. Uh-huh. Um, and the original logo, I had a friend that I worked with at the bike shop in Santa Cruz, the bicycle trip in Santa Cruz, and I worked with a talented writer and artist named Mark Michelle, who later owned the bike trip there in Santa Cruz. And he designed the first salsa logo. So virtually all the artwork after that was not from him necessarily. And very little of it after that was from him, but was modeled after that and to have some sort of fun vibe to it. And, you know, I gave a talk at NABS in San Jose a number of years ago. And it was frame building and, and business. It mm-hmm. reminded me of some of the stuff that uh, Carl was talking about. But I found early on uh, that uh, there was a few things. When you went into bike shops, when I was first building frames, you went into bike shops and told people you're a frame builder. They tended not to not like you because uh, the other bike, the other three builders they'd ever known were all flaky, didn't come through on time and tried to sell their bikes direct and didn't want to cut the bike shop into anything if the bike shop sent them to it. So custom road bike builders back in the 70s did not have a very good reputation with dealers. Now, this is that's that's a big window we're looking at. There's certain certain builders definitely had it dialed. And I realized early on, hmm, I can simply deliver frames on time and be successful. (laughs) <laughs> with this with this mountain bike thing and i i you know if i just work hard and give people realistic delivery dates i can do that and i found that sharing how i did that with my customers who were direct for the first for the first couple of hundred custom frames custom salsas um uh sharing the well i got to do this and sharing my life with them and stuff people dug it they go, oh, well, no, I want you and your kid to go out for, you know, I don't, if my bike's a week later, that's okay, man. I, I, I. And it's like people want to belong. 
there's an inherent thing for all of us humans to want to attach to something, someone, some group. Um, and so this anyway, this business talk I gave to people was you're not selling bikes, you're selling yourself. And the bikes are secondary. You want people to like you. You want people to want some of what you have because they're going to give you their money. They've worked hard to earn that money. They're going to have to wait for your goods. So you want them to be on your side. And to do that, you bring them into your life. You show them some of the fun. You share some of your... And I, I got beat up on because I had some political stuff in Bellow News a couple of times. And I had people call me and you know tell me they wish I was dead and that the recall of 240 stems that I had once. Well, I hope that runs you out of business. You call me and it's like, okay, whatever. But um, people, people like the club. This also was, and that, and that, that led to these huge parties and people that collected all the t-shirts and, and you have a new Jersey out this year. Well, we have a new one every year. Well, I didn't know you were still doing that. Oh man, I got to get it. And, it, so it was a really broad community. This is a very funny story about salsa, and it never fails. Anybody from overseas that was into mountain bikes, which got pretty feverish there for a while from a number of different countries, if they were on the West Coast, they'd find their way to Ibis and, and Bon Traeger and, and me, and they'd come in, and almost 100% of the people would ask, where's the rest of the shop? Where's the rest of your factory? <laughs> it's like, this is it. Actually, I, you know, we really grew. I, I got another thousand square feet just for office and warehouse space once. But, um, but for the most part, my biggest shop was 3,000, 3,500 square feet or something. And they go, well, you can't produce everything out of here. And I say, we do. And they go, but you, your, your stuff sold all over the world. You're, you're known everywhere. And I go, well, yeah. We're, you know, but we're just a tiny, little, tiny, tiny, tiny company. And we had 2,500 different dealers we dealt with in the U.S. Wow. That's how many different, our stuff was all over the place. There was a time when um, you go to a criterium and it was like, man, all the stems are black now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before, uh, before we wrap it up, I feel like we should talk a little bit more about, um, Things are so different now in every way mm -hmm. than they were, and maybe not maybe not every way, but so many ways. Things are so different now for people who want to learn to make bikes or the the business or uh, so many things are different. But uh, one of the things is like the way that you go about learning and the way that you go about doing the fabrication itself, especially you know like learning. There's there's UBI and there's all these different bike schools and stuff. Uh, how did you learn to do the, you know, the construction of these bikes and how did you decide, you know, make decisions about building up your fabrication space? I mean, you had a small factory. How did you go about that? Well, I, you know, there was a lot of stuff with the factory that I wish I could do, but I just would never be willing to go into debt to do it. I was really intrigued with the way Fat City had their shops set up with just a shit ton of dedicated machines with, you know, vices literally welded on top of a machine table just to, okay, this miter's the same on every fucking bike and we're just making it like this and that's just the way it's going to go. Um, I was really intrigued with that, but California didn't have the big dump back at the, uh, in those days of manufacturing companies that they did on the East Coast. So the machinery was just far harder to get my hands on and stuff. So I didn't get really too, uh, too fancy with manufacturing. It was pretty basic. 
Um, but, uh, you know, seeing what was going on in other shops, people's shops, and I taught myself totally from the, I mean, I worked with the Proteus frame kit, which came with this kind of comic book kind of thing that said how to build a frame. And I read everything I could, and there was precious little and no schools back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, you know, my techniques and stuff were just, just my in the trench experience, uh, coupled with whatever I could learn from whatever other builder I could go talk to or see. And something to keep in mind is back in the early days, I mentioned how bike shops didn't necessarily like most frame builders. At least that was my experience. Uh-huh. Well, frame builders didn't like most frame builders. <laughs> <laughs> there were, there were few enough customers that knew how to search out a custom bike builder and there, the, the Road bike builders were very competitive. Now, I did make some friends, but I had builders in later years. I had builders tell me, get the fuck out of their shop back when I was, you know, before I built the frame or after I built one or something. And I had builders tell me absolutely false stuff that, you know, a few years later, I'm going, well, now that he actually knows me and we're friends, he's saying this. But back then, he said that. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> And uh, builders that wouldn't let me in their shop because, oh, I, hey, Ross, let's go to lunch. I, I, I can't let you in the shop right now. Um, that all changed like overnight with, with uh, mountain bikes, which was that was super exciting for me. It's like, oh, wow, we all get to talk to each other because we all none of us could get the right tubing. None of, none of us could get the right anything. Yeah. You know, it was all we had to adapt what we had and, and uh, find is So, you know, I had the pleasure of working with Scott Nickel on some things. I'd already done some things with Paul Sadoff long, long, long ago. Anyway, you know, all my techniques and stuff just came from the observation of my own work, learning from my own mistakes, largely, and watching other people's stuff. And in the early days when nobody would tell you how they did anything, I got good about looking around the shop and trying to analyze what tool was used for what. And, and, you know, you, you start to develop an intuition of, of well, at this point, you have a, a good level of intuition about just about how anything is made. So if you walk into a shop that makes whatever, barrels, you know, you're going to look around and get an idea how it's made, whether you see somebody making them or not, mm-hmm. right? So I became really good at that, man. And I've scrutinized pictures of people's shops and stuff over the years, <laughs> you know, staring at, oh, there's, a, there's an article on, on, uh, on uh, oh, what's his name? Bruce Davidson, Davidson up in, up in Seattle. Here's some pictures of his shop, you know, and I just sit there staring at the picture, staring at the picture, staring at the picture. Uh-huh. He's got that kind of grinder. I want to get one of those grinders. I've done but, that. Um, exactly. This is the same thing as you. Yeah. Like, or, uh, if someone has a video that's just, you know, supposed to be a cool video with music that kind of overviews the process or something. And it's not really a how to, it's like marketing right. material, but I'll sit there and I'll like, I'll frame by frame a certain spot because I want to see like, Oh, this water bottle drill fixture that they made. That's brilliant. You know, <laughs> like these little exactly. tiny details are like, they're um, the way that they, or, or, you know, I mean, actually there was one a handful of years ago that, that Sean had the Soulcraft shop, which I think is, you're saying is the, the shop that you guys used for salsa probably was mine at the time yeah yeah but he had a, a shop and it's just a video of him making a bike but i've watched that video very closely because he's so good at making bikes and he has so many interesting tools and um 
that right. sort of thing. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Just just watching it closer than the the person making the video ever realized anyone was going to watch. <laughs> right, right. But it's, I mean, that's there. There's a lot of skill to that. There's a lot of skill to noticing and observing things and learning from them. And you can have fun, a lot of fun to it, with it too. Yeah. <laughs> One of the worst things you can do to another frame builder is <laughs> Chris Gordon and I used to do this to each other all the time. Um, you walk into a frame builder shop and you're talking to them and you, you know, as you're walking by something, you start to swivel your head and, and focus on the one thing and snap <laughs> your head back and it will almost always get a, what do you see? What do you see? <laughs> like warp is around a brain on what what do you see a, ri a, a ripple in the tube what are you looking at what are you <laughs> nothing man i'm just checking out how bitching it is that's funny <laughs> no you see something don't you <laughs> that's funny um okay lightning round question here uh um just because i I have a thing for old matt sura cnc machines uh tell me a little bit about how you got your old uh what is that? A M M MC five sixty or what, what? What's the model number on that? I I think it's a five ten. Uh huh. Um. So I got that. Uh. I, I got hired for the CNC Sierra. milling machine. I should say if I didn't say that, it's a it Matt's or a yes. CNC milling machine. Yeah. It's a CNC milling machine, three axis. It was made in nineteen eighty eight. I got hired for the Sierra steel guitar gig and was told that they had a fully operational shop up near Portland with a CNC machine and everything operated and i figured oh well i guess you know i said well do you have a machinist who knows how to run it nope we don't I'm like okay well i've been working with cnc guys and running i've you know gone and operated machines a number of times for dave and some other friends when they needed an extra hand in the shop uh, for a day or two and i've certainly designed a ton of shit that's been cnc'd but now it's time for me to learn how to do it because i'm going to go up there and use this machine so i took a a junior college class and I took another junior college class and I'm like the world's worst book learner. I have to be <laughs> hands on. Uh -huh. So fortunately we did have these little toy CNC machines I got to play with. Um, but I still, you know, I left classes going, okay, well, you know, I know how to make stuff, but I really, you know, this is going to be really hard because they, we barely even touched on any cam stuff there in the classes. It was mainly just learning G code and stuff. And, it's like, man, you might, I, music theory is easier than this. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate that too. Um, so I was a little bit discouraged, but um, a project came up for Sierra. They had a bunch of lap steels that were laying around. And I said, hey, let's get those sold. They're just sitting there. They've been sitting there for 10, 10 years or something. Let's get them out of here. Well, we don't have any leg sockets. What does it take to make leg sockets? Well, it's this machine thing. I go, oh, perfect. I'll see if I learned anything in my classes buy the material i'm coming up to portland let's machine these suckers so i went up there and it turned out the machine the fadal 4020 that they have up there is not in as pristine a condition as they thought it took the better part of the day to even get it running and accepting programs so we found the old programs that they made these things and they took uh shit, i'm not sure i remember. i think they took 19 minutes to process these parts through their two uh there's like two different setups mm -hmm. they had to go through. Um, and uh, it took about 19 minutes for the two, for two pieces to be done. And um, by the end of the first day, oh, let's see. So we got the machine running. I kind of got the parts working. The next day I went in there 
cut that 19 minutes down to like six minutes uh-huh. and felt like a king, <laughs> felt like I'd printed money uh-huh. because, you know, we'd done the math. It's like 19 minutes. You're going to be running these, you know, 400 parts for the next three weeks uh-huh. <laughs> for Christ's sake. And I'm not staying here for that long. So I, you know, it's like, that was fun. You know, just chopping and channeling the program and changing speeds and feeds is mostly what I did. And, you know, doing some stuff. Of, we don't need to do that. Just get rid of that. I uh-huh. just cut off anyway. Um, it was just like making the block pretty before the part got made or something. I don't know. But had so much fun doing that. I went back to my hotel room that night and just said, hell, if I'm coming up to going from NorCal to Portland, every time I want to use a CNC machine, I got to have one now. Mm-hmm. And within 30 days, I'd gone to an auction and found this uh, Matsura, which uh, I was keen on finding exactly that machine. I was lucky to have, um, but keen on finding it because my good pal, Dave Garut, has the exact same machine. Oh, cool. And I do the, and he's kind of my CNC mentor for l- lack of a better description other than brothers. Um, we're pretty close. So I bought that machine for next to nothing. You know, old machines sell for nothing. It was actually some bigger machines went for even less because the little machines at that time were kind of taking a premium. Yeah. And the Matsuras of that era are known as being heavy duty, really yeah. solid machines. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got for like 8500 bucks. By the time it was sitting in my shop and tooled up, I had about twenty. 25 into it mm-hmm. it came with nothing um i later found out that it had a fourth axis board in it that i didn't know about and so the fourth axis had been on sale there at the auction oh, and no. had, but, uh, it's one of those it has what well where's the rest of it because <laughs> they just strip those things they take everything out of them oh man the, the goodie table to the auctions anyway i bought that and i uh, have you know i just the surface of it. I don't do anywhere near as cool of stuff as you're doing with 3D pads and whatnot. But I will be. I've got a I've got a young, brilliant uh, CNC programmer, machinist kid who's into bikes too. Just so just so happens, who is uh, more of a knife maker kind of guy. He does uh-huh. a lot of uh, work for uh, aftermarket parts for high end knives and. Uh, he makes the world's most expensive Zippo lighter cases out of titanium. And Whoa. anyway, he shares my shop with me because after Sean left, it's like, well, my shop makes like 90% of my social life and I'm just going to turn into a really <laughs> angry old man. If I don't have somebody young around here. So I put an ad in Craigslist and ended up with this awesome machinist who's helps me with all kinds of stuff. And, uh, so I'm sharing my shop with him and now we have a, CNC router as well for the woodwork stuff I do for my steel guitars and inlay stuff. That's awesome. And I have a Hardinge um, Talent 850 lays that is that sat for the better part of two years before I really started using it and learning how to use it. I had a friend who came over and used it far more than I ever did in that couple of years. But finally, it's like, okay, I, I, I just got to learn it. I have a really hard time learning this stuff, you know, not being computer native is really a drawback yeah 
for learning all this. It's like, Ross, did you check out using 360? Yeah, I did. And I really want to switch to it because I hate SolidWorks. I love SolidWorks. I hate the company. Uh-huh. And I don't really use SolidWorks anymore. And I stopped buying it because it's just way too expensive to just maintain the subscription. And I want to use Fusion, but I can't. You know, the way I learn a CAD program or anything is I have to have a project of my own and I have to do it front to back all by myself. Well, with an instructor, preferably over my shoulder, telling me what to do and working through it and then having it made that and then shit locks. Mm-hmm. But I can read it 35 times. I could watch a, a tutorial 100 times and I can't. It just doesn't work. Yeah, it's uh, it, uh, it certainly affected my ability to get through high school with decent grades because <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> yeah. The, um, something that struck me about that, Matt, sir, machine is that, um, you know, I think that's got an old Yasnak control on it, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I think any machine of that age, uh, when you have alarms and issues with the control can be like really frustrating and usually not very user-friendly to try and troubleshoot and figure out how to get it working again. And old machines yeah. will inevitably have issues. But what's cool about those is that uh, those machines were built so heavy with box ways. They're really, you know, solid iron. And if you got one of those that actually worked and you had the time to fix things when stuff went wrong, they're not terribly expensive and they're tiny. Like those, those machine, I think that machine is about the same size or smaller than my first CNC mill, which is big compared to a, like a manual knee mill, but it's, it's not so massive uh, that, right. you know. So anyway, for, uh, for, you know, frame builders and people who have a small shop who would like to make their own dropouts or this and that random thing, um, there are some advantages to a machine like that. Oh yeah, that and the little my centers or the Kitamura and my centers are another little machine like that that's just awesome. Yeah, and uh, that's why it kind of went. I mean, there were some Matsura six hundred VM VMC six hundreds. These bigger, much bigger machines that were going for five grand. Yeah, yeah, that's the same auction, and and these guys, you know, these other machine brokers were buying them and. Uh, and a couple of shops were just coining out going, holy shit, we're getting totally equipped today. This is great. Uh-huh. And, but uh, virtually all, because they had one 510 and like three of the, what was it, MC500? It's kind of, it's pretty much the same as the 510, but it's open. So oh, It's got okay. the big bathtubs around it. Yeah. Um, yeah, proper enclosure went, is nice. Yeah, those went for more than the big machines. Wow. It was, it was mind-blowing. Yeah, well, but of I, course, you know, it, it gets to be old enough where it's not that reliable, and then if you actually stand to make any money on it every month, you're better yeah. off with something that you can count on than you are. Even if it is, like, a really incredibly good deal for what it is, you can't take that risk when you actually have work to, to ship. So, like, you get these amazing machines for pennies on the dollar, and they're just, they weigh, like, 25,000 pounds, and they take up somebody's entire garage, and you know, it's, it just becomes hard to find somebody who even wants to buy it. Uh, who wants to buy it. And it becomes increasingly hard to find people that don't cost an arm and a leg to have work on it. And, uh, actually yeah. last year we bought a full set of control boxes off one of these machines that somebody was selling for 500 bucks. It's like, let's just buy it all. Those boards are expensive. Yeah. <laughs> just have backups. <laughs> we had just paid 3000 to have a board repaired. Wow. 
Yeah. On Matsura. It's like, yeah, that's expensive. <laughs> yeah, it's not cheap. Um, and yet when, when an old machine like that, I mean, that's like, you know, 30, 35 years old, but you get an old machine like that when it's working, you can make a lot of money on that and you can do incredible things. And so you don't want to discount its capability. It's just, they're usually not super reliable anymore. Oh yeah, exactly. But and I get it, you know, I'm dying for a bigger table machine as, as you noted from the, uh, we are a little exchange, I'm sure from yeah. uh, your comment on my, on sequencing that part through. Yeah. Yeah. I had to cut. It's like, huh? Well, my machine is just not that big. I could go down to Dave's and, It'll take me five times longer to machine it than it would here because I got to talk with them and go to lunch and I got to, <laughs> I'm just going to do it here and figure it out. Yeah, I've, I've figured out all kinds of workarounds for the yeah. small space. But some, they actually, they would have had, if I had asked the owner of Sierra to, uh, to bring that fit all down, he would have done it on a heartbeat and, and paid to have it shipped and fixed and everything. But I, it's like, that thing's just huge. It's a 40 inch table. Yeah. which I would have loved to have, but it's the thing, the thing's huge. And it's like, I could put it in my shop, but I really like the space I have now. Back when Sean was at my shop, we were super crowded. He had all his machinery in there, all my machinery in there. And then I stuck the Matsura in there. It's like, okay, everybody take a deep breath. <laughs> Shove it in there. <laughs> Yeah, and now it's more open, and I've I've added on to the shop since John left too, and it's I'm really enjoying it. It's uh, I I have my dream shop now, pretty much. That's awesome. I'll never. My my wife says things like, "I thought you said that was the last machine you were buying." Well, <laughs> well, honey. Actually, I was gonna buy. I was saving up money for the last machine I was gonna buy, which is a hardened HL at HWH tool room lathe. I have a perfectly nice lathe, but 90% of what I do is little tiny stuff. And I hate using this big web lathe um, on that little tiny stuff. I don't have to. So I start shopping for one and it turns out my shopmate hears me talking to somebody about buying one. He goes, well, my dad has one just rusting in a garage up in, uh, up in uh, Mendocino. Can I just bring it down? It's like, fuck yes. That's awesome. <laughs> so now I got this awesome. And now it's like, you know, this is never leaving. I know you're going to leave and start your own business someday, but this will not leave. <laughs> it can stay yours. I don't care. That's funny. Well, but, yeah. um, I think we should, uh, we should wrap up the call here. Um, but I really appreciate you taking the time to, to tell us the stories of your time in the bike world and beyond. Uh, you really do a lot of interesting stuff. I'd love to see a Sierra steals guitar in person someday. Uh, hopefully I get that opportunity. But uh, cool. anyway, Thanks so much for what you're doing. Thank and, you. Uh, sorry if I've gone off on too many stories. No, that's fine. Yeah, you know, when you call us old guys, you just got to figure. <laughs> okay, here goes. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Okay. Take yeah. care, Joe. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. So here's a tip for employees. Yeah. Having one employee is fucking awesome. Yeah. If it's somebody that loves what they're doing. Yeah. And I had this guy, John Hammond, who just really super mechanically adept. And just really badly wanted to learn how to build bike frames. Um, super motivated. That was so fun working with such a motivated guy who was so hungry to learn. It really pushed me. It excited me to, oh, shit, he's, he's no slouch. He's picking this stuff up. So I got to, you know, stay on top of it and keep him coming along and, and not be stagnant myself. 
the second employee, it got even better. Now we're like the three musketeers and we're in there and it's so fucking fun and we're busting ass because the three of us, one guy's tacking on the binders, I'm brazing the binders, another guy's over there mitering the tubes and we're just cooking all this stuff. And then the fourth employee comes on and everything changes. No, <laughs> the third employee ch- comes on and everything changes. And the fourth comes on and everything changes even more. And now you're the boss. <laughs> yeah. So no more than two. If you got to hire people, no more than two. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have to be that way by any means. And we still had tons of fun, but uh, there was a definite change. I mean, I was so excited. It's like, I don't want to hire anybody. I don't want to, I got to hire somebody. I just have too much work. I cannot survive. Mm-hmm. I can't make all these stems that I've built a demand for and all this shit by myself. So I got to start hiring people. And it was so, because keep in mind before that I'd had partners. That's a whole different deal. And especially when only one person is the known person in the group and the, and the only, only one of the people really knows the skills involved. That got really difficult. We had, uh, we had, uh, before I had employees, when I had my partners, I had apprentices. We put out an ad in California Bicyclist, a long gone magazine that said, uh, frame building apprentices wanted long hours, hard work, no pay. (laughs) And we were flooded with applications, flooded with letters. We just said, send a letter to my house in Petaluma. Flooded with letters. <laughs> That's the whole Most bike of- industry. Everybody is just willing to work for free. <laughs> oh my god, it was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, there was only there was actually quite a few people I could tell were really passionate, could probably do it, but it's like, no, you're not going to move up to Sonoma County. I'm ready for a change in my life. I'm an engineer working in Palo Alto, and it's like, no. I'm not going to bring you up to this grubby atmosphere, and where you know you're down there making a hole. Back then, ninety thousand dollars a year. Why would you? Why would you think <laughs> about coming in building frames? And you know, I, I didn't take on any of those kind of people, but I did take on a few people. Only one of which really worked out and understood what an apprentice's duties were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hired him when he was done with his apprenticeship. I told him all. I the uh, the apprenticeship lasted through their first frame. Um, and they had to work for me. They had to do, you know, X amount of hours a week working for me to earn that apprenticeship. And that, uh, if I was happy with how they had done through their apprenticeship, I'd probably hire them. And one guy was a retired dentist and he, he, it it wasn't for him for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, another guy, it turned out, we couldn't figure out what was going wrong. He'd do good work one day just was like, okay, so you ruined 40 seats days. Good thing they're still too long. Cut that end off, but we can't get much bigger because the dropout's only this big, so don't ruin it this time. Uh-huh. Do a plotting change stage or something, or seat stage. And it turned out he had an addiction problem that he had made. It. He, he had moved from Montreal or something. Wow. To do this frame building apprenticeship, and I'm going, wow, you guess, he said, well, I've always wanted to live in the U.S., and uh, da, 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 da. And, in, and at the end, I, you know, I said, look, I, I got to fire you. This just isn't working. You're costing us too much money. And, and there's something going on with you emotionally or something. And he fessed up and said, I'm really having struggles with my addiction. And uh, I left 
Canada to get away from all my sources and stuff. And I'm finding, I just can't, I, I got to take a different approach. I just can't. And so it, that was all fine and good, but it was an interesting experience, but the number of people that applied and said, Oh no, this is a good move for me. I'm ready to make a change <laughs> in my life. And you're talking to a 43 year old guy who's pulling down really good bucks mm-hmm. and, you know, 20 times smarter than I am. And they're yeah. going to come in and go, why do you do this? Why do you do that? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? And it's like, you, you get about three or four of those, and I tell you, shut the fuck up and do it the way I said. Uh-huh. <laughs> because I know it works. And uh, I ended up developing a technique of gently letting people know that, you know, until you know how to do it our way, because now it wasn't just me. I had a bunch, you know, at one point I had 15 employees or something. And it's like, once you know how to do it as good as John or me or that guy over there, I want to hear your ideas, but not until then. Yeah. You, you know, you could tell the first couple of days if somebody was going to have good ideas. And usually the ones who are spouting the ideas every 10 minutes are not the ones with the good ideas. <laughs> it's, it's the ones who are really quiet and observant that come to you a week. You've been watching him watch something and going, what's he looking at? What's he, what's he thinking about? What's that? And then a week later he comes back, hey, you know, I've been thinking – it's like, okay, that's a good suggestion. And even if you don't know how to do it as fast as we do. But it was, uh, being an employer is not 100% horrible. It's pretty satisfying. I mean, yeah. the same thing that scared me, you know, you're having a baby, huh? Oh, fuck. Same thing that scared me just made my, my heart sore, truly. It's like, oh, man, this is what it's about. People making a living, doing what they want. And mm-hmm. that was... That was always the core. I grew up with a dad who hated his job, never made shit money. He painted the road down or the stripe down the middle of the street, never made more than 10 grand a year, which, you know, a lot of people back then didn't make more than 10 grand a year. But um, he was very unhappy. Our whole household was very unhappy because of it. And it's like, man, that's, I'm not getting up and going to something I deplore every day and then just sit in my room and be angry the whole time because I'm going back the next morning. Fuck that. 